helper tonight who's going to help me read some things. This is Hannah. And so, Hannah, underneath that picture up there where it says part nine, what do those words say? There is no egg on the bicycle. You read that very well. That was good. And we, and we got all those words. But what does that mean? Uh, exactly. What does it mean? You understand all those words, but it's like a word salad. What do they mean? This comes from a story uh, that, that, that I remember reading where Christian missionaries went to Nigeria in the, in the 1800s, and they tried to translate a Christian hymn into um, the language of the peoples there, and they ended up mistranslating it in their language. It came out as there is no egg on the bicycle. So the subtleties of translation can be tough. We have been talking about the translations of the Bible into English, and uh, it's it's really interesting. Somebody asked me the other day. She said. What translations were there around the 1910s, 20s, and 30s? Uh, King James, I know, has been in English for hundreds of years. I said, truth is, there's not that many. Uh, You have a few attempts at this, but you see a boom in the 20th century. Before that, King James pretty much is it. Look at this chart. You'll see there was an 1800s, uh, late 1800s attempt at a new English revision of uh, the Bible. And then it really picks up after World War II. Uh, there are some in the 20s and 30s, and there are some attempts to, to do it in a, um, in a very free style. We'll, we'll look at those uh, soon. But now there are new translations coming out all the time. Why? Here's the reason why. We've grown in our information of the ancient manuscripts. We, we, we have discovered more Hebrew and Greek manuscripts since the 1600s. These are not changing the meaning of the Bible. They're actually confirming it in most cases. They're confirming our translation. But, but at the same time, it gives us more insight as to how a certain reading or translation may have developed, and, it, and I, I believe it's moving us towards more accuracy. Technology is making the work of translation and printing easier. We are, in a, we are in a situation now where Scripture can be shared electronically. You can go to BibleGateway.com, and when I first started teaching this series of lessons, BibleGateway.com did not exist. Now you can go on there, you can see nearly every English translation and then translations into other languages. Uh, And yet, there are still 165 million people who do not have Scripture in their native language. Um, That was was brought to home this week. A man named Rich Seeley came by. He's with Pioneer Bible Translators. And... um, you know that some of our people in other countries that we support, they work with that same group translating Scripture into languages that it's, it's never been translated into before. Which, by the way, I, I want to put this out there, and you'll hear more about this. On Friday, April 21st, up in northwest Arkansas, there's going to be an event hosted by Pioneer Bible Translators. And since some of our people that we love and know 
and um, in, in Southeast Asia uh, are connected to that work, some of you may want to attend that. It may be a way of encouraging that. But that, by Pioneer Bible Translators is associated with the Restoration Movement. Uh, it's independent Christian churches. And again, the emphasis is on getting Scripture into the language of the people, just simply Scripture. And uh, I, I think that's a worthy goal, and I'm glad that our friends are involved in that. But that technology has enabled us to do more and more in this, in this uh, even with English. Um, now we've got more people who are educated. Think about it. In the 1600s, uh, you had a select group of people who had the knowledge of the education to study Scripture. And even as education grew, theology and Scripture and things having to do with uh, religion and the church, that was still somewhat off-limits to a select few. It's one thing to learn more science and more uh, in other fields, literature, history, but, but theology was always a protected realm. Well, that starts to change in the 1800s. And then the other thing is you have changes in the English language since the King James. Um, one of the biggest changes in the English language is the second person singular. Which you would hear every once in a while when someone prays in that religious sounding language and they would pray in these and thous. I, I remember people doing that. That was just their prayer. That's how they prayed. And that's fine. I'm not knocking that. But I never understood. Why, why do you, you know, where does that come from? Why, why a thee and thou? Is that a, just a, a fancy sort of Shakespeare way of saying you? No. That was the, um, that would be the, the singular version of that pronoun. You would say you, just one of you. You, thee, thou. Y'all, in King James, is, is ye. Okay? So when you see ye, and, uh, and the funny thing is, is, I always heard people using ye as if that was, you know. Get ye back here, you know. And I was like, wait a second, I'm a one, I'm not a y'all. And, uh, and so ye, by the way, when you're reading King James, you can always tell, you're wondering, if you wonder, if that's uh, just one you or if that's more yous, go look in King James. If it's thee, thou, it's singular. If it's ye, it's plural. There you go. A little fact there. But we have to change that. We have to update that because you and I don't catch that subtlety. Our language changes. Language is adaptive. It changes over time. It's never static. Um, and, and I'm kind of a nerd about this stuff and I could keep going. So let's talk about translation. The goal of translation is to establish a relation of equivalence, of intent, between the source and the target texts while taking into account a number of constraints. Boy, that's a good textbook way of saying it. What that means is, it's like, think of the guys on the tin can telephone. You've got one person over here, you've got another person over here. And you've got to keep that string tight if the message is going to go through that at all. So you could mistranslate and end up with an egg on the bicycle kind of a situation. Um, I, uh, Lord willing, my son and I, my youngest son, are going to Guatemala in March. And that means I have to uh, dust off my Spanish and get that going again. There was a time when I was almost at translator status with Spanish. Not because I wanted to be here because I'm really great, but because I was kind of it. And it's not easy. Um, 
when I was at Russellville, I went to Nicaragua, and there we, we were picking up, a, I was going with one of the men from the church, he spoke no Spanish. We were picking up a doctor in Nicaragua who was going to go with us to Honduras, to Oscar's hometown, actually. And so there we are on the plane. The doctor, she's over here. She's Nicaraguan. My friend James, he's right here. Guess what? She doesn't speak much English. I feel like I'm at a tennis match doing this the whole time. And my brain starts to hurt. I'm doing the best I can, and it's not very good. And I know, I know I was messing things up because every once in a while I would see her grin and laugh. And I had no idea what I was saying, but you do your best. When you go to Ethiopia, I realized, well, you talk about giving up your sermon. Sometimes I was two translators away from my sermon. I would say something. Elamayu would translate it into Amharic. Alamayu would say it to testify. He would translate it into Aromo. Even Alamayu didn't know what was going on with the Aromo. He's having to, I mean, if he understood Aromo, he'd be translating it directly. And then every once in a while, I'd catch him laughing about something. I have no idea what it was. But that's the, the struggle of translation. You're going from the source to the target, and you have to understand some things. And literal will not help you. When Oscar, y'all know who Oscar is, Oscar Nolasco, Iglesia de Cristo. So a few, few years ago when Oscar, uh, you know, he and Alicia gained their citizenship, okay? And they, uh, you know, they're, Amer- they're U.S. citizens now. Big, big accomplishment. And I was so proud to, 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 to witness that. And uh, I said, man, I said, Oscar, I said, uh, you know, it's been a long road to get that green card. And I said, I bet you had to cut through a lot of red tape. And he's like, what? I was like, you know, red tape. I'm like, you know, cinta roja. You know, I know how to say it. That's, that's how you say red tape in Spanish. Cinta roja. He's like, bureaucracia. Oh, okay. You know, I mean, and, I, and I realized that that term, which is so normal for you and I, doesn't translate. And, and this is what happens when you translate from one language to another. I'm going to give you some examples, and you're going to enjoy this, Okay. This is from a hotel in Austria. Not to perambulate the corridors in the hours of repose in the boots of ascension. There's a new word for you, Hannah. Perambulate. You know what that means? That means walk. That's an English word. But see, they thought they were translating into English. Now, now you you read that, you kind of get the idea, right? What does it mean? Don't walk the halls at nighttime or go up the stairs, you know, something like that. I don't know. But again, it's, it's interesting. Okay, that's just kind of, you know, boots of ascension, whatever those are. That's just, that one's just kind of weird. Um, here's an example of a sign, of a hotel sign in Tokyo. And again, the people in Japan are trying to translate this into English. Is forbidden to steal hotel towels, please. If you are not person to do such thing, please not read this notice. Yeah, you know, you know, just disregard this message, you know. Just don't read it. Well, I came to the end here. I did read it, you know. You know we don't want to insult you. And, 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 you know, you look at this, and as English speakers, we're realizing, okay, we kind of see what the problem is. That, um, you know, they've got some words, syntax matters, in some languages it doesn't. 
You get the idea? Okay. This is one of my favorites. This is, uh, here you go, this is Russia. This is, this is Moscow, and they're translating a, uh, a hotel sign. You can see how a mistranslation can, you know, these have just been weird. This can actually change the meaning. Ladies requested not to have babies in the bar. Now, what do we think that means? No children in the restaurant bar area. But we know that having babies means something different. There's a subtlety to English. Uh, So, yeah, that changes. Um, Same way, uh, I think the, uh, the Soviet Union really did some good ones. If this is your first visit to the USSR, you're welcome to it. You get the idea, but you understand where they're, they're you know, it's like, oh, okay, well, we need to adjust that, you know, and if you could help them, you would help them uh, uh, change it a bit. Um, you are welcome to visit the cemetery where famous Russian and Soviet compu- composers, artists, and writers are buried daily except Thursday. <laughs> if you get the words out of order, the meaning can change. It's, it matters. Um, The lift is being fixed for the next day. During that time, we regret that you will be unbearable. (laughs) They don't know it, but they came up with a play on words. Um, uh, There's someone uh, logged in a a sign in Tokyo. It's on a Tokyo map. The uh, sewage treatment plant was identified as, in English, the dirty water punishment place. Um, A detour sign in Japan was translated as, stop, drive sideways. Okay. Uh, An Italian doctor's office. They translated uh, one of the uh, doctor's specialties as uh, specialist in women and other diseases. Uh, there, t- typically, the English of the, of the people who are translating things is better than our understanding of their language. And, and this is one that is, is, is actually correct. Via la Papa it means I saw the Pope. And, you know, when the Pope came to visit Central America, they came up with a lot of shirts. But it's that, it's that ah, that, that is, the, is the little bit of a problem. People still get it, but it can also mean I saw the potato, not just I saw the Pope. Um, and again, there's a, there's a subtlety and meaning there. And this is what makes translation so difficult, but also so interesting. Now, if we flip the situation around, uh, there's a story about Coca-Cola going to China. And uh, they had to find characters that more or less made the sounds Coca-Cola. The problem is each of those represents a word, and what they came up with is, uh, you know, some of them were, were really difficult because they, they translated to bite the wax tadpole, the wax flattened mare. They finally came up with a good one that, mo- that says, let the mouth be able to rejoice. Coke's thinking, that's a, good, that's a good name. We like that. We like that. So that has that meaning, and it more or less makes the sounds like Coca-Cola. This was all part of, of Coke being uh, trademarked in China in 1928. And they did their work. 
But you can see that the work of translation, it's like pulling that string tight. You've got to go from an English meaning, which Coca-Cola is, is really kind of a, a nonsense word. Uh, it's based on the coca leaves and cola, and uh, there's a lot of different colas. And then you get a brand name that kind of means something but doesn't mean anything. And so you've got to somehow move it over there. And you can't just say Coca-Cola in, in China and, and know what it means in 1928. Because it's going to mean something, and you may not like what it means. Uh, there's a famous, I think it's just an urban legend, but there's a famous urban legend about Chevy marketing the uh, Chevy Nova. My grandmother had one of those, the Chevy Nova. Problem is, in Spanish, Nova means it doesn't run. Yeah, and, and, that's, and, and here's the thing. That's an urban legend. I don't think that's true. Companies are very careful about this, and uh, they, they pay attention to what it's going to mean in that language. Sometimes it, get, it gets missed, though. Um, but let me tell you, even with English, things can mean something different in English. If you've ever been to any of the other English-speaking countries, you'll see stuff that doesn't quite sound right to you. One of the best examples is uh, I asked one of my friends in Scotland, I said, I want you to give me a sentence in English that people in America will not understand. So he came up with this. Go ahead, Hannah. You want to read that? Can you read that? That I'll help you with the difficult words. Q. Blethering. Stoted. Coupon. Yeah. Well, what does that mean? I don't know, yeah. Very good reading, though. Very good reading. Uh, anybody got a clue? Anybody want to take a stab at it? What do you think, Lori? Yeah. Uh-huh. That's good. That's pretty good. That's pretty good. Q is line. I was in the line at the pictures, movies, and this bird, a, a, a woman, started uh, blethering to me. She starts talking to me, flirting, really. And then the lumber I was with, that means, that's like saying the, my ball and chain, my old lady, the, my girl, thought I was trying to pull, meaning thought I was trying to, to, to leave her, the date he was with. And so she stoted me one on the coupon, which means punched him in the nose. Now, those are all English words, and you understand most of them. But outside of their context, it can be difficult for us. I mean, you hear that stuff. I loved it. I'm not going to repeat the joke because it's not, you know, it's, well, anyway. But I was, we were just laughing one night. This was in 1987. And we start telling jokes, you know, and humor is international language. And so we're telling jokes, and all of a sudden the Scottish kids tell this one joke. And uh, I'm not even going to try to explain it to you or anything like that. But they come up with the punchline. And, you know, I understand the joke. I understand the riddle. They come up with the punchline. And I'm like, and they're all just laughing. And I'm like, it's funnier to me because I don't get it. And I'm like, I have no idea what you just said. You used these words and they didn't make any sense. And then they had to translate it for me. Uh, here's some other examples of this. The weans are giving me jip and my heat is far, fair nipping. Okay, and I can't even say that right. That means the kids are, are back-talking me and my head is splitting. Okay, uh, Fana boots are you going back out to see Maloon, which means uh, when are you uh, going back out to see my loved one? 
Um, Fana Boots is a way up in northern Scotland to say that. Hod your weast means uh, shut up or be quiet. Now, it's not just Scotland that does this, though. Um, I had a friend in South Africa share this one with me. It's a monkey's wedding. What is a monkey's wedding? Anybody know what a monkey's wedding is? This was a new one to me. Uh, she's South African, and she told me this. Um, that's a day when it's the, the, the sun is shining and it's raining. They call that a monkey's wedding. Yeah. Oh, it's a monkey's wedding. I have no idea how they did that. But if you're in South Africa and the sun is shining and it's raining, it's a monkey's wedding. So there you go. And again, but listen, we say some things that probably people are wondering, what on earth are you talking about? Especially done in the South. You know the examples of those. So that brings us to how do we get from this to an English translation that we understand? All right. Now, since y'all can read that up there, you know, you'll, uh, some of you can. But, um, okay, that's James 3.17. That's what it looks like in Greek. All right. Doesn't do us much good. The word I want you to pay attention to, to is right down here. Uh, uh, ta splankna. Ta splankna altu. That means his bowels. Okay, his guts. All right, so th- this is, a, and what this is saying is, well, okay, this is a literal translation of it. This is literal, word for word. Who but might have the life of the world and might watch the brother of him need having and might close the bowels of him from him how the love of God stays in him? Not very eloquent. So when people say, well, I want a literal translation from the Greek. No, you don't. I mean, that's like Frankenstein translated it, you know. Who but might have life. And so it isn't worth Now, you remember that uh, John Wycliffe, John Wycliffe was the first to dare to go from this. And actually, he couldn't go from that. He had to go through Latin, okay. But he went from the original, or close to the original, Latin, and he goes to English. He came up with this. He that hath the chattel of this world, and seeth that his brother hath need, he that shall have the substance of this world, and shall see his brother have need, and closeth his entrails from him, how dwelleth the charity of God in him? That was a revolution that people could read that and hear that in English. They're getting the idea. I'm sure some of them are going, wait, what closes entrails? What does that mean? You know, that's that, that's that toss plunk now too again. Okay, here's King James. But whoso hath this world's goods, and seeth his brother have need, and shutteth up his bowels of compassion from him, how dwelleth the love of God in him? Now, wait a second. Where was of compassion in the Greek? Uh, having and close the bowels of him uh, from him. There's no, there's no word in there that says compassion. It's not in there. See, what the King James translators, and this is why King James translation is not 
a literal translation. And that's why it's pretty good. Because it wasn't. The literal translations, you're closer, you're more like Wycliffe and talking about entrails. The King James translators understood, okay, we've got an idiom there, like red tape, cinta roja. This business of the bowels has something to do with compassion. So they put a little note in there. Shutteth up his bowels of compassion. So that English readers will will understand a little bit. You have to get, that's called an idiom, you have to get the idiom to cross the bridge. Okay? Otherwise, you sound like an idiot, okay? And, and, you, and you don't want to be an idiot. You want to have a good idiom. Here's the American Standard Version. Now we've got up to 1901. But whoso hath the world's goods, and beholdeth his brother in need, and shutteth up his compassion from him, how doth the love of God abide in him? Not much different. We move ahead to Revised Standard Version. This is post-World War II, 1946. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Wait a second. We've just gone from bowels to heart, haven't we? Can we do that? Can we do that? Why can we do How? Why? Yeah. You no more have compassion in your heart than you do your guts, okay? That's a metaphor. That's an image. We understand that that compassion and feeling comes from something else. But we use parts of our body to explain the experience. You know, in English, a gut feeling is what? That's intuition. That's a hunch, you know, I've got a gut feeling about this. What does that mean? It means, yeah, just, you know, I've got something or, you know, you know, oh, you know. Or we say, I don't have the guts for that. Or you've got to have more guts, meaning you've got to have courage. Okay. We relate that emotion with the guts. Yeah, Ron. See, bad translation. How about that? Okay. Yeah. So just change James to 1 John. Good, good translation work there. Yeah, James, John, it's all the same. Uh, the, thank you, thank you for that. So if you're looking for it, you know, it's 1 John 3, 17, and you'll, uh, it'll make more sense. It will, that's good, that's good. Um, make a note of that. And then, uh, you know, but we love with our heart. Our heart is where we feel compassion. Now, those are just organs. But again, in the language, you relate it to something. The way you say things, you use different terminology. So with, by the time you get to the RSV, they feel comfortable enough going ahead and saying, look, let's just get the idea out there. It's closing your heart is the same thing. Closing your bowels doesn't sound good. That, 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 that sounds like you've got a medical condition. So we want to, you know, you don't want to close your heart off to those in need meaning unfeeling. Now, watch what they do after this, uh, New American Standard Bible. But whoever has the world's goods and behold his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide? Okay, uh, well done, very similar. Here's another thing. Notice that if you go back to 1901 even, the American Standard Version, but whoso hath. When's the last time you used whoso in in a sentence? Um... We don't use that word very much. Whoso. Uh, maybe, you know, I don't know. Uh, I, I was thinking about that. Uh, what? How? 
Follow it with ever, whosoever. Yeah, we turn it into one word, don't we? Whosoever, you know, whosoever has just caused why these two should not be married. We don't even use that in, in weddings. I don't, but yeah, we, whosoever, we don't say whoso hath. And so, uh, yeah, it's kind of an archaic bit of language that, that we don't use as much. Um, and, you, and language is dynamic. It changes. Uh, here's Young's literal translation. And whoever may have the goods of this world and may view his brother having need and may shut up his bowels from him. Now see, how doth the love of God remain in him? Young was going for a literal translation. And again, he's wanting to do that because, okay, let, 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 let's preserve the structures of the original language. I'm going to bring this all together. The living Bible, on the other hand, but if someone who's supposed to be a Christian has money enough to live well and sees a brother in need and won't help him, how can God's love be with him? Now we have no more guts, we have no more heart, but the idea is coming across. This is the Living Bible, not the New Living Translation, but the Living Bible. The Living Bible is a 20th century um, uh, free translation, okay? It's trying to get the idea out there in the target language, which, was, which is English, I remember that people used to apologize for the Living Bible of Lot. Like, if you had the Living Bible, it was going to, you know, uh, cast you into, you know, eternal judgment. Uh, and once I created an embarrassing situation. I was teaching a class. This is years ago. I was teaching a class, and uh, I was even at a, I was at a visitor church. And, uh, you know, someone, I think a family member, said, hey, you want to teach a Bible class? I said, sure, I'll teach a Bible class. So uh, we were doing Psalms or something like that. And I said, let's read this passage. It wasn't my lesson i had the lesson that was given to me i asked somebody i said uh, read read this anyway he read and it was from the living bible i didn't know it at the time but it, it was perfect it got the idea across i said oh that's great i said what translation is that oh well i don't know this is something that's on my wife's t- desk and i just picked it up you know and i'm like well no 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 no. what is it i said that's really good oh, it's a living bible you know and i'm like no it's okay it's okay you know and he was like okay he'd been called out you know and then he's you know, he's like Adam blaming Eve for it, you know. The woman gave it to me. So, um, but, but it was good. Living Bible was getting the idea across. Uh, you've got the same thing now with Eugene Peterson and the message. Eugene is trying to get the message of Scripture out in language that you use every day. Uh, if you see some brother or sister in need and have the means to do something about it, but turn a cold shoulder. Hey, he brought a new body part into this. But we understand that phrase. And you do nothing. What happens to God's love? It disappears. And you made it disappear. Now he's going a bit further than the Greek with this business of it's disappearing. But he doesn't care. (laughs) Because he's trying to make the message vivid again and cold shoulder. Ooh, we understand that. Closing your heart off sounds a bit, you know, highfalutin and... And maybe, uh, see, you know what highfalutin is. Try to translate that into Spanish. I mean, people, uh, what? And, um, but, but now cold shoulder, that strikes an image. You're like, oh, the cold shoulder. Nobody wants the cold shoulder. We don't like that. And that's what, you know, tos block now, too. That's the meaning that it has in Greek. One of my favorite little translations you may not have ever heard of this. A guy named Clarence Jordan translated the scriptures in the, uh, somewhere in the 20th century, between the 1930s and 1950s. I, I don't really remember when. But it's called the Cotton Patch Gospel. They ended up making a, uh, uh, or the Cotton Patch Bible, they ended up making a play out of this called the Cotton Patch Gospel. And what he was trying to do was he was trying to put the, the language of scripture 
in the words of the people that he knew in the rural south. And what now, where he would really, it was really interesting, he would change things like Jerusalem, because people were like, what's Jerusalem? We don't know Jerusalem. Remember, you're talking about rural people in the south. He changed that to like Atlanta. And, <laughs> and you know, you're thinking, oh, what? You know, that's just a bit far. Maybe so, but it's getting the idea across, you know. And, and, uh, and I don't remember what the actual breakdown is, but, but listen to how you did Now, if somebody who has material things sees his brother in need and then padlocks his concern for him, how does the love of God stay in him? And uh, what Clarence Jordan does with the Cotton Patch Bible is, is really interesting. He'll get some of those figures of speech in there. It's a translation work. NIV, if anyone has material possessions and sees his brother in need but has no pity on him. Ah, see, they've gone for the... They've gone for what it is really all about, the pity. They've just gone straight to it. How can the love of God be in him? But you may not like pity. You may say, oh, I don't know, pity. Pity sounds like, uh, pity sounds like you're looking down on people. That was one of my grandmother's expressions. She would say that. If something was really bad, she'd, ju- she'd just go, oh, how pitiful. You know? and, uh, I rem- you know, and it was kind of, I remember once I was watching uh, MTV at their house, okay, because we had satellites. And one of these rock singers comes on here, an ugly, ugly man, okay? And, uh, and his face is just up there on the screen. And my grandmother walks in. She's like, oh, how pitiful. And I said, don't worry about it, Mom. He's got lots of, or Grandma, he's, he's got lots of money, and he's married to a beautiful woman. And so uh, the, uh, he's a rock star. But, um, that, but pity sounds bad, so you might have to translate that differently if pity's not good. New RSV. How does God's love abide in anyone who has the world's good and sees a brother or sister in need? Okay, that's just, we're not attaching emotion to it now. Just need. And yet refuses to help. How does the love of God reside in him? Okay, so you've got all these different translations. Oh my goodness, we've done it all. The big question is, which one is right? That's not the question. Don't ask that question, which one is right? That's not how, that's not how it works. When you're translating, you've got two concerns. Remember that structure, and you've got the message. You've got the source language, and you've got the target language. The formal equivalence method preserves the structure of the original language. That's what Jung's literal translation is trying to do. They're trying to keep that intact somehow, so you get a sense of what the original language is like. There's reasons for doing that. Dynamic equivalence says that you're going to put in the, in the, uh, the receptor language, the, the target language, the closest equivalent of the message. That's where you take you know, the guts of him and you turn it into pity or need. And you, you get the same idea across. Okay, but which one of those do we choose? Well, we balance between them. And by the way, our friends that are translating right now, they're dealing with this. I remember one of my teachers who was involved in this work um, uh, decades ago. He said the difficulty sometimes in translation was they, had, they were working with a, uh, an Indian tribe in Central America. They had no word for heaven. Not the way you and I think of heaven. So they have to, they can't do a formal equivalence they have to come up with some sort of dynamic equivalence they've got to get the concept out somehow this idea this spectrum gives you what we're trying to do on the ends you can go uh, very literal 
and this is going to be your interlinears, this is going to be your American Standard Version, you're going to see more of the structure of the original language. But you can go to a very free translation. That's where you're going to see the message. Uh, you're going to see the Living Bible. They're preserving the dynamic meaning over the structure. They're making a choice. But you also have a range right here in the middle where you can balance the two concerns. In the case of Tasplanknau uh, 2, you go dynamic equivalence. But for everything else, we'll be more formal. And this is a majority of your translations. And King James falls right in there, too. It's one of these that, it's actually, a lot of people think that, it, you know, it, it's, it's, well, actually it is. It's more on the, on the literal scale. Uh, but, again, this is a guess. We, we look at a percentage of how they do it. Uh, I've seen this same spectrum, and King James is more over here in the idiomatic. I, I don't know. But it's that green zone right there where it's balanced. Now, there's a place for these as well, Okay. And that's why I think a better question to ask is not which one is right, but which one is best. And the way you answer that is, what's the purpose? Uh, Are you wanting to teach? Are you using Scripture to teach? Are Are you wanting to study? Are you wanting to get some sense of what the original structure was like? then you might go as far as an interlinear because you might want to see how the words stack up. You have to consider the reliability. There are all of those translations that we've talked about are, are very reliable translations. Usually, if you read that stuff at the beginning of your Bible where they talk about their translation methodology, that's the stuff that will put you to sleep in no time. But it will tell you stuff about what their rules were, what, their, their, you know, what they were trying to do. And that's what gives you the idea that it's a reliable translation. Uh, unreliable translations don't often get published. Now, that, that, that may not be the case in, um, with the Internet. And by the way, there are translations out there, and before the King James, this was especially the case in English, there are translations that have an agenda. They want to translate words a certain way to prove their point. And you can do that. You can nuance a translation. I would say that reliable ones are those that leave it pretty much to what it was saying in its original, but communicating the difference in our language. Okay. And then consider your need. Are you reading Scripture? When I read Scripture, uh, depending on which book of the Bible it is, I will sometimes use the New Living Translation or the Message because it delivers a new impact, a new hearing. Uh, you know, sometimes we can get through a few uh, haths and thous and these and whosos, and it's like, I, I, you know, it just becomes word salad. You don't hear it anymore. So sometimes you need a translation that will really pack some punch. But sometimes you need a reading, like in a class, that allows us to step through. So sometimes, like in this setting, I'll use the new revised standard version because it's closer to the structure. And what we're doing there is we're, we're picking it apart more. We're looking at the structure. We're spending a little more time on it than just a reading. One's not more intellectual than the other. Intellectual power and sweat and, and equity has gone into both. And we're the beneficiaries of that. But you just have to know which one you know, you're needing for a particular time. And by the way, we haven't even talked about interpretation. This is just translation. 
interpretation and how we read, whatever it is, uh, is a different game altogether. I hope all this encourages you to say, and by the way, when people ask me, well, which translation should I get? I often say, it depends. It depends. Um, the best translation, the best translation is a reliable one that you will read and it will stimulate you to grow in your relationship with God. That's the best one. And you will find yourself, and I don't know why this wouldn't be true for anybody over a lifetime, you taking advantage of many different ones. And they all have their place. Um, they, all have a, they all have a place and a usefulness, um, some more than others maybe. So we've got the Bible, folks. Don't take it for granted. Let's absorb it. Let's pick it up and read it and read it often. And, uh, and during this growing season, I want to encourage you to do that too. Uh, we're going to sing this song, and if you need to partake of the Lord's Supper, it's been prepared in room 100. Let's stand, let's sing, and then Lee will dismiss us in prayer.